Calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAD. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detail today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story and we are here to tell it. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I'm joined by Patrick McLaney, FAIA, and former CEO of the international architecture firm HOK. This is Build Smart. After his time at HOK, Patrick, as he puts it, has been repurposed. Now, as the chairman of Building Smart International, Patrick will outline a new strategy for the building industry and so much more you'll find that there's a lesson in every episode. Welcome back to Build Smart. In our last episode, Patrick shared his concept of BIM BAM Boom to highlight the true value of design. He examined the total cost of a building, design, construction, and operations, and how early effort and commitment actually reduces the total cost of a building. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the episodes to hear Patrick's full story and insights into how to reimagine the building industry. At this point in the story of Building Smart International, the group that started as a private consortium in 1994 behind the support of Autodesk has become an independent international team, making solid contributions to the technological evolution of the building industry. However, something was lacking. In today's episode, Patrick shares the moment that changed the entire trajectory of the organization. In previous episodes, we discussed the origins of Building Smart International and the power of Open BIM and the IFC format and all these great things that Building Smart is doing. So in this story, we're making progress with Building Smart. The seeds have been planted and things have started to move. But something happened in 2013. What happened in 2013? 
Well, yes, actually, 2013 was pivotal. We had been going along as Building Smart International as a almost all volunteer organization. We had learned to work together, Mark. We didn't have the fractured my country versus your country that we had in the beginning. So we were we had developed a nice cooperative style, but we didn't have any vision to really conquer the world or make sure that things we really believed in would be adopted everywhere. We were just going ahead one day or one month at a time and pretty pleased with ourselves because we had generated enough work and done enough thinking to develop a couple of IFC releases. That's the primary product that Building Smart had done as a standard. But in 2013, all of that got turned basically on its head. I was uh, still working at HOK in those days, and I got a call from the government of the United Kingdom asking if I could come to the, they have a government briefing center in, in Whitehall, which is where the government operates in central London. And could I be there in two days? Hmm. And it wasn't really a request, it was a summons. Yeah. And it was a summons to me, not as Patrick the architect or Patrick the HOK person, but Patrick the chairman of Building Smart International. They didn't tell me much. They said, well, you'll learn all this at the briefing center. So I said, sure. You know, when you get a summons like that, you go. So uh, I took an overnight flight and I remember because of the schedule, I actually ended up having to do something I don't normally do. I flew overnight, landed in the morning in London and rented one of those little uh, showers where you could change your clothes and take a shower and shave. And so I, I did that and then took a taxi straight to the briefing center. Actually, uh, when I went in the lobby, it had the look of a secure place. There was a nice receptionist, but there were also guards around. I was on a list and I had to show my passport and I had to go through a metal detector. And she led me into an elevator and we went down, not up. And what we were going down into, I learned later, was a part of an underground bunker complex that had been built by the British government during uh, World War II. In fact, it's a directly adjacent to, there's a very famous bunker that Winston Churchill himself was in with his cabinet. There are a number of military citadels that are known to have been built underground in central London, mostly dating back to World War II. Now, deep beneath central London, Patrick's elevator opened to a purely utilitarian style complex, exactly what you would imagine of an underground military bunker. Cinder block walls with pipes, wires, exposed mechanical, electrical, and plumbing equipment throughout. So she brought me down into this labyrinth, windowless space with lots of people, lots of meeting rooms, and uh, brought me into an empty conference room. I was quite nervous, actually. I didn't know exactly where they wanted me to sit, so I took a chair against a wall, and I remember, I think I had an early version of a smartphone, I plugged that in because I was about out of juice. So there I waited to see who would show up. And it was a, maybe a good 15 minutes. It seemed like an hour. And finally, all of these people trooped in. They were from the UK government, di different divisions, different departments, from British Transport, from the Health Service, someone else from the Justice Department. 
I had my eye on him. I wanted to make sure I was doing all the right things. <laughs> and there was a senior member there who reported directly to the Minister of the Interior. That's one of the British cabinet positions. And they got right to the point. They said, well, look, we have uh, been asked by the cabinet, British cabinet, to form a task force to improve the delivery of buildings and infrastructure in the United Kingdom. We spend billions of pounds sterling every year to build highways and railroads and various buildings, school buildings and hospitals and this and that. And we don't think we're getting our money's worth. So the government has asked us to find a way to drive efficiency into our processes for hiring architects, engineers, and contractors and report back. So we've done a long, big study, and we've determined that we believe we can drive a 20% improvement in the efficiency with which buildings are, desi are designed and built and infrastructure as well. And um, our big goal, when we presented that to the cabinet, we said, we, can, we think we can save 20% if we implement some policies. And we suggest to the cabinet that the cabinet not put the 20% in their pocket or not spend it, but instead of building four schools, they build five. Instead of building four miles of road, they build five miles and so on. In other words, they make their pound sterling go further. That was so compelling to the British cabinet that they were given a budget authorized to begin a program to basically retrain the British building and infrastructure industries, architects, engineers, and contractors. And the retraining was all centered on this idea of using digital standards, getting uh, architects and engineers away from their drafting boards, 2D drawings, and helping them with some incentives to transition to working with BIM, and uh, same with the contractors. And a lot of attention and detail was spent in how information was exchanged between architects, engineers, and contractors, because they, in their own studies, had determined that was where a lot of the waste came in. And uh, they said, we have another strategy, uh, a, an additional strategy that has come out of this study, which is to turn the British building and infrastructure industries into export industries. We want them to be, we think they're going to be so much better than those in other countries that they will begin to uh, be able to, to go to other countries and, and design and build as well. And in order for them to be an export industry, they need to use something besides standards that are generated here in, in the United Kingdom. So they said, we need international standards for digital work, not local British standards. Even though Britain is a larger, one of the more advanced countries, it's still relatively small. They did not, not want to get into the trap of developing their own standards and find that a few years later, the world has mostly adapted another standard and they would be left in a blind alley with no way out. So they said, we conducted a search around the world looking for the best international standards for digital design and construction. We found only one group, Building Smart International. They said to me in very proper British, you're the only game in town. So we investigated you. We, we studied your website. We looked at some of the products that you put out. We like what we see, but you're not mature or big enough 
you're mostly volunteer led, you don't have a proper staff. And our mission here today meeting with you is to challenge you to go professional, to grow up, to get yourself a professional staff, to be able to serve our needs and the needs of other advanced countries that want to adopt digital standards. So this all unfolded over a period of a few hours as they explained in detail what their plan was. And one piece of it that I'll, I'll mention, it's quite elaborate actually, they had this idea of hiring architects and requiring the architects to be trained as part of the commission for designing a project so that architects would be trained first how to use uh, digital standards and uh, gradually become more and more adept with each succeeding project until they were fully transformed. It was a five-step process. And uh, it was quite impressive to see a government. And I said, well, why, why is a, in the government, why do you think you can actually change the industry that has been so resistant to change? They said this, in the United Kingdom, the government is the biggest client for architects, engineers, and contractors by far. And uh, we thought, well, if we're the biggest client, we should have the loudest voice. And besides, we're the government. And if we decide we're going to do this, we have the levers of power to make it so. And we have an ability to, to get the standards and adopt them in the United Kingdom, the standards for digital work. So we're in a better position to do this than, let's say, a large university or uh, maybe a large developer. Uh, or, or some other private entity. So it's really the job of government to do this. It made a lot of sense to me. I hadn't thought about things that way, that here was a government of a large, major industrialized country asking us to step up our work so they could actually implement a, basically an industrial policy yeah. inside their own country. Fascinating. It's, it's very interesting. For one, a government having that much foresight is really interesting. Yes. That, they, that they're looking that much far ahead to recognize that there is an opportunity here. And then not only focus on a, on a UK-focused technology, which is what they could have done, right? But they didn't want to do that. They wanted to create a, the global standard that they led, which is really interesting. And so yeah. they found you. How did you respond to this gigantic challenge? Well, it was, it was overwhelming at first. And I, I do remember... Uh, <laughs> We spent the afternoon talking more in detail. And remember, I just flown overnight to get there. So really not much sleep. Then they invited me to dinner. You know, my scotch is my drink of choice. So I had a nice scotch. And before the first course was over, I was falling asleep in my, in my chair with these high-powered government officials. They were very gracious about it. They understood. They said, well, we've called you here on short notice. So um, I was able to finish the meal and I told them, I will be back to you as soon as I have a chance to consult with my colleagues in the Building Smart leadership. And so they, they let me off easy that first night after, after actually a pretty nice dinner. I think it was nice, although I was pretty sleepy. So Building Smart in those days was led by an executive committee. Uh, I was the chair then and, and still am now. The executive committee, I think, was five people from all, all around the world. And we met in an early version of Zoom once a week uh, and conducted the business between international council meetings. The international council, which is the, the collection of chapters, country chapters, 
was the real boss, but the executive committee or XCOM acted, uh, was more nimble and, and met more often. So I met with my XCOM colleagues, gave them the briefing. They were all shocked and thrilled at the same time. We had been dreaming about doing something like this, but didn't have an incentive to get out of our own way of volunteer work, publish a standard, do some more work, publish an upgrade to the standard, and hope somebody noticed. It's a shock to actually see that, well, somebody has noticed, and they've asked us to step up our game. I called it the UK challenge when I briefed my XCOM colleagues. At this time, I was very much impressed at what the British government was undertaking. The XCOM consisted of some of the voices you've heard from in previous episodes this season. Alain Mori. At the same time, I was very happy that happened. And uh, the result was, was the creation of, uh, of Building Smart International and some a team and, and so on. And to be honest, I was a little jealous about, about uh, the success of, of those uh, ideas in, in, uh, in the UK. And uh, because at the same time, it was so difficult in France to convince people I, I, I was dealing with in, the, in our government. We were absolutely not at the, at the same level. So I was jealous <laughs> of that <laughs> and, and very happy. I don't know if you remember, but I, I invited uh, UK people to, to come in Paris and to meet people from my government, Paris. I was desperate. <laughs> and Rosso Steinman. The chapters, they are so differently and they are also on the, on the level of the professionalization, they are so different that this chapter community was not able to generate enough money to make a strong international organization. Uh, we discussed it and said, okay, if we're going to do this, we need to hire a, an executive. We need to raise some money, some serious money. We had been mostly existing, Mark, in, until that time with dues from the international chapters. I think uh, every chapter, the annual dues were 20,000 euros that was enough to, to do a little bit of work. But if we're gonna hire a, a senior executive, you're talking about a couple of hundred thousand euros at least to pay for somebody that's any good. So we, we needed to change our fundraising uh, idea, our thinking. And uh, we started by passing the hat out to everybody in the organization. We had a big meeting, we explained it all. People were skeptical, but thrilled at the same time that, okay, this is a big opportunity for us. We did a lot of fundraising in a short period of time and put together a couple of hundred thousand euros in pledges. It wasn't all in cash yet. We decided, Mark, that because the UK government was so interested in building smart and was so supportive of us, we should actually locate our executive in London if possible, just to make it easy for the liaison and that Building Smart had already been chartered as a UK nonprofit uh, limited company uh, from our early, earliest days. Our very first organizational meeting was in London, for example. So we had some UK presence. It just wasn't much. Then we decided, well, how do we hire a new executive? And I suggested, well, we needed a professional a recruiter, and I volunteered to pay for the recruiter that HOK London 
uh, use on a fairly regular basis to find talent for our office in the UK. Everybody agreed. And of course, they agreed because HOK would pay that bill. But we hired a headhunter, Grosvenor Clive and Stokes, met the man who was going to do the headhunting, a very proper British gentleman. And our headhunter said, this is the most difficult search I've ever had. You're asking me to find an executive for, for an organization that has no structure and no staff and no business plan and no strategy. <laughs> they were able to find two candidates, one of whom was Richard Petrie, the other whose name I've forgotten, but it doesn't matter. He was an, an army major, a retired major in the army. I think we split up in different groups. So I was also in one of the groups which had an interview with, with, with Richard. First, we had questions for him, and then the uh, the whole thing turned around, and he started to raise questions for us, <laughs> and he brought up very good questions. Yeah. And I think already in this interview, he started to understand uh, uh, where we are in Building Smart and probably what has to be done uh, with Building Smart. After this interview, I was not sure whether he would come with, uh, with us or not. But uh, in this group who interviewed Richard, he said, well, we think Patrick will, will like this guy. <laughs> and, and I arranged for each one of these gentlemen on two separate days to come to the HOK London office. We had a, a high-end video conference system set up between all the major HOK offices. So I sat in San Francisco, and this Army major sat in our HOK London office, and I interviewed him and did my best to explain what is Building Smart and what do we need? And at the end of the interview, he said, this is all very interesting, but I'm not your guy. Hmm. I've been in the Army my whole life, and the Army has nothing but structure. And I've learned how to work within a structure, but with, without a structure, I'd have to make one. I'm not sure I, I can do that. So he excused himself, and we were down now to one candidate. And I interviewed Richard Petrie, I think, the next day. Richard, when I first saw him on the, on the video conference screen, nice man, beautiful smile, in his uh, late 50s or maybe early 60s, had a wonderful laugh. And he had a really interesting background of experience. He, he was trained as a civil engineer, but he had done a lot of different things, fixing things. One of his jobs was to go live in Helsinki, Finland, and there was a shipyard there that was turning out cruise ships. They were behind in their production, and he went up there and figured out, in, the, in behalf of a client, how to make that shipyard productive again. He also lived with his young family uh, in Jakarta, Indonesia, for a while, uh, helping to establish uh, one of the first railroads in that country. Loved adventure. He was a mountain climber in his youth. He skied every winter. He was a blue water sailor, fearless, and loved the challenge. So I had this conversation with him. I did my best to explain Building Smart. He was a skeptical, almost as the Army major, about the job. He said, well, you have nothing. You have no structure. What do you want me to do? Well, create a structure, figure out what we need to do to respond to the, the UK government challenge and to build ourselves up as an international nonprofit. He said, gee, I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm your man. <laughs> and I had an inspired moment. I said, well, before you give me your final answer, why don't you come to our next international council meeting? 
it was going to be in a, a month or so in Espoo, Finland. Espoo is a suburb of Helsinki, Finland, one of the Nordic countries. And it was late in the fall, as I recall. So the weather was starting to turn. It wasn't deep winter there. It was brisk, let's say. And I said, we'll fly you there and put you in a hotel at HOK expense. So you don't have any personal risk except to spend a couple of days. And he thought that would be fine. In order to build smart, you need to operate intelligently. If you feel frustrated wrangling all your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your projects stand today, or you're tired of staring at poorly designed software that's just slowing you down, Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, the Monograph platform allows you to track your firm's time, projects, budgets, invoices, and payments all in real time. With their innovative visualization tool, MoneyGant, you can immediately see whether you're under or over budget. Need to easily adjust your team's time week to week? Their tool resource allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Visit monograph.com today to see why hundreds of architecture firms call Monograph a game changer. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. I met Richard for the first time in Finland. Introduce him around to the XCOM and to the International My Council. was absolutely excellent. Uh, Richard uh, seems to be the... the perfect person to do this. But I found him really joyful and uh, very friendly. Immediately, we were, we were comfortable with, with him, uh, obviously. But at the same time, I realized how difficult it will be for him. The International Council, which is two representatives from every chapter, plus a few technical experts, all of us could fit around a fairly large table, maybe 25 or 30 people. And so 
we had our discussions. He sat through them. He asked questions. I thought we were putting on a pretty good show, but I could see he was puzzled by our uh, conversation because a lot of it was tech talk. And uh, I really am pleased that he stuck it out for two days. And at the end of the second day, by then it was raining and it was a cold winter rain coming. So we stayed in the hotel. I said, Richard, let's have dinner and talk about this. At that point, was he ready to walk out the door? Or was yes. He... Yes, so he you, was. You sensed that. You sensed that, that uh, this is not going well. And I didn't want to let Richard Petrie get out the door without a good fight. So I invited him to go to dinner and we had dinner in the hotel dining room in a table out in one corner of the room. And I told everybody else to give us some space. And the best thing that I think I did that night was order a bottle of really good red wine. Richard liked his, his wine. And so we, we enjoyed the bottle and found that we liked each other. And that's a really important thing in any, any job. Yeah. And I said, you know, you'll be working directly with me as the chairman and with the executive committee. And we'll give you all the support we can as you begin this work. So we talked it through. By the end of the dinner, the bottle of red wine had made us both feel pretty good. And he said, well, I'm still not sure. And then I had, I'd say, my second inspired moment of the night, which is to say, well, Richard, you've established yourself as a consultant. That's how we found him. He was in a consulting role where he would be hired by a company or an organization to fix something. And I said, why don't you, instead of coming on as our executive, why don't you come on as our consultant? And we'll, let's say, let's have a six month consulting period. And at the end of the six months, let's see what you can do. And if you like us and you like the result and we like you, uh, you can continue on and consult some more. And if you really don't like us and we haven't made the progress that either of us thinks is appropriate, well, you can leave. And you can say, you know, uh, that was very fine. And thank you for the consulting opportunity. And you can go on with your consulting practice. I think Richard was, was concerned, like anyone would be, what if I hired on as an executive and the whole thing failed? Right. We couldn't raise more money. We couldn't get organized. Yeah, it, was, it would damage his reputation. Yes. So it was inspired. And as he thought about it, he thought the consulting idea was a good one because well, consultants aren't responsible if companies fail. They're only responsible for their product, their consulting work. So the, the bottle of red wine plus the consulting offer turned the trick. And Richard and I shook hands. He said, yes, I'll do it. And I was relieved and also concerned because, well, now the next six months were crucial. And Richard, put yourself in his shoes a minute. He's coming into an organization. He's just met us. We're scattered all over the planet. We have a little money, but not much. A product called IFCs that is difficult to explain. And we, uh, we said, we, we want to change the world. And when we say that, we wave our hands in the air and say, believe me, we're going to change the world. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so it was a real leap of faith on his part. Yeah. And, and on the other side, he had a successful consulting business. Yes, he did. He was already happy doing what he was doing. He, he was quite happy. So I, it was a real leap of faith on his part. But he and I really did hit it off. I, I would say, without equivocation, he's one of the finest men I've ever had the privilege to meet in my life. And of course, now we all know that he, he passed away suddenly 
this year, but not until he had actually accomplished this huge gift of making Building Smart from a small volunteer-led organization into a large, well-organized, professionally-led uh, international standards organization. Uh, so Richard Petrie was an extraordinary man. He said the first couple of weeks were quite lonely because he sat down by himself in his own office at home and thought about what we needed. And he came up with something extraordinary, Mark. Uh, he came up with a five-year plan and said, at the end of five years, here are the things we need. We need a, an, uh, someone to run the organization day-to-day, -day, the technical work. The technical director that Richard would eventually hire was Leon Van Berlo. I think in general, it is, um, it is trying to uh, progress the, uh, the necessary technical changes in the whole community. As a community, we collectively wrote a technical roadmap about two years ago now, two and a half years ago. And I think my current day-to-day -day work is trying to implement that as, as good as possible and try to prioritize and balance all of the, the, the massive amounts of work that still need to be done. Another role that Richard identified was an operations director, which was assigned to Richard Kelly. Uh, my responsibility is to look after the, the operations of Building Smart International on behalf of the community. You know, responsible for the programs, the structure, the financial operations, and all the things that make it possible for the, the organization to succeed alongside my fellow executive directors. We need a, someone to market uh, our, ourselves to the rest of the world so the world knows who we are. We had a broken down website. There was no social media presence. So it was we were not quite invisible, but you had to really look hard to find us. Richard started with that and made something really wonderful out of it. Just before he passed, he added the last of the four directors to Building Smart that he had put out in that first six weeks. He had a master plan. He actually fulfilled it by hiring a compliance director, someone who will help people comply with the standards that we've set forth, uh, who will help train up people to work with open BIM uh, systems and learn how to use open data systems properly and so on. So it was an extraordinary thing for him to take this job on. I said we had pledges for a couple of hundred thousand euros. And of course we had to pay Richard uh, regularly. He, he sent us an invoice once a month. And about the third month, we couldn't pay. So Richard sent a note to me that I haven't been paid. What's going on? I checked, well, the pledges had not come through. So I had a conversation with my wife and the McLamey family paid Richard Petrie's monthly stipend. Oh, wow. And we did it a couple of different times uh, out of our own funds. And fortunately, uh, we have some funds. So we were able to do this, but it was right at the edge. And he said, you know, if I'm not getting paid regularly, I'm not gonna do this. And it was pretty clear, if I didn't pay him, nobody else would. This was a by the skin of our teeth story from the beginning to the end. Uh, it all turned out well. Richard began to build a staff. He did liaise with the UK government and um, began to build a relationship with them and of course with governments and uh, organizations in other countries where we had chapters and eventually all around the world. When he started with us, Mark, I think we had 
seven or eight chapters. And when, um, when he passed, we had 31 chapters. And um, that first meeting in Espoo where he attended, I think we had 30 to 35 people in attendance. The last meeting where he was present was our summit in Beijing, China, where we had 1,500 attending and 50,000 people online watching. What an extraordinary journey that he's led us on. And he had an ability, because he was curious about other people, always interested, everybody uh, that he met began to think of Richard Petrie as their friend. He was the embodiment of, I've said in the past, the industry foundation classes, which was our main product, I began to call the International Friendship Club. But Richard Petrie, everybody became Richard's friend. He had an engaging smile and a memorable laugh. And people across countries, different cultures, didn't matter. They were all people to him. And uh, he was the embodiment of the International Friendship Club. The, the idea that we need to be friends first and then develop common standards together second. We can't do it until we become friends first. So that is the Richard Petrie legacy, I think, is, is that this organization that it actually is fulfilling the, the master plan that he laid out, I think, in the sixth week or so of his tenure as a consultant. What a fantastic man and what a great journey. Yeah. The other part of the journey that I'll just mention is that in the UK, they began as good partners for us. And then as governments do, there was a change in government. There was a change in emphasis. They got all worked up over whether to stay in or get out of the EU and eventually Brexit. And uh, there is still a U- UK government program to make more efficient buildings but it's only a shadow of the strong and well-structured program they had at that time. So they got us organized. Then they lost their focus as a country on uh, digitization. I think they'll eventually get it back. They have adopted the IFC as a standard, but they've been, they've been uh, like governments maybe everywhere, get thrown off course and other sure. priorities, but it was just right for us. It was perfect, in fact. Yeah. What an amazing story to have such an opportunity to, to have this sort of fledgling organization with big dreams, big hopes, this global changing uh, mission, and not really knowing how you're going to get there, not even having the structure to do that, and then having a call out of the blue from the UK government and saying, hey, come on over here, we want to talk to you. And that being the trigger that basically led to what the organization is today and brought Richard Petrie on as the leader of this organization that planted the seeds and created the structure and the framework of what we see today. All those amazing opportunities just sort of brought to you. It's so it's such an amazing story. It's a really good story. And uh, I think it's been one of the greatest rides of my life. You know, I grew up in HOK, but I think the work that I've done in Building Smart and the, the growth of the organization to be able to serve the global needs for digitization is the most exciting part of my professional career. Yeah. So his work is Richard and, and the work of building smart is not finished, but Mark, we're at a turning point. Now we're beginning to get, instead of pushing other people to adopt building smart standards, we're beginning to get pull. 
people are coming to us now and saying, we need this. How can we get involved? How can you help us? But that's a Richard Petrie legacy. It's really a legacy of the original Building Smart idea that we need to change ourselves in order to better serve our society. Uh, I'm an architect. My original idea about this, I want to practice architecture in, a, in the best way I can, serve my clients. I want to reclaim the, the, the goal of being an architect at the center of society, not someone that's marginalized. So um, Richard Petrie had a lot to do with that. And thank you, UK government, for the kick in the pants yeah. that, that we needed. And, you know, they did it. We took advantage of it. We responded, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. Yeah. The UK Challenge, the story of building smart growing up. What are the lessons that we should take away from this episode? The first one is take advantage of events. If something happens, embrace it. Figure out how you can take advantage of it. And aim high. Don't be afraid to dream. And I think we, we had been aiming too low in Building Smart, had not been dreaming enough. And the UK was a wake-up call. Let's, let's dream big. Be bold about seeking support for big ideas. It's, uh, there are a lot of people with money. Uh, what you have to do is have a big idea and some big dreams that make it worthwhile. And if you ask people for money and you have a big idea and you're able to explain it, there are people with money that will say, okay, yes, how much do you need? I want to help you. And the UK Challenge, of course, is, it was the spur that really made uh, Building Smart what we are today. It spurred us to, to a greater accomplishment. I'll always be grateful that they called me over and we had that meeting in that funny uh, labyrinth. And then finally, Building Smart, uh, because of the UK Challenge, was well positioned to serve the infrastructure industry as well as the building industry, something we did not realize at the time. But the, the greater growth of Building Smart in these last several years has been all about infrastructure, not just buildings. And so that's a story for another day. In the next episode of Built Smart, Patrick pulls together everything we've learned and highlights how design can take center stage. Master the technology, don't let it master you. Don't be afraid of it. And uh, you will find that there's great power and great strength in having the technology working for you and uh, so that you can actually do what you were originally called to architecture to do in the first place, which is to really be thoughtful about design. In the interim, as Patrick mentioned in this episode, Richard Petrie, the CEO of Building Smart International, suddenly passed away in 2022. In honor of Richard, we've also shared a tribute episode. I encourage you to go listen and find out more about Richard Petrie and the mark that he left on our industry and the world. Thank you for listening. Season two of Build Smart Podcast has been made possible in part by Building Smart International, the worldwide industry body driving the digital transformation of the world's built assets. Learn how Building Smart International is impacting our world and how you might get involved at buildingsmart.org. This podcast is a Gable Media production and is produced by Demetrius Lynch Jr. Gable Media is the home of curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. You can listen in, subscribe, 
and find more content like this from our network partners at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. How familiar are you with the hidden forces shaping our world? Learn about the spaces you occupy every day with Spaces Podcasts, a journey through the design, construction, and the impact of our evolving environments. Hi, I'm Demetrius Lynch, host of Spaces, and I'm thrilled to take you on a ride through the intersections of environment, politics, culture, and economy. Join me and leading industry professionals as we uncover the stories behind the spaces that shape societies, past, present, and future. Today, there's a certain amount of cynicism and and kind of general malaise. Maybe many practices should come together and think about common goals, solving some of the major issues of the day. If I'm not mistaken, am I seeing like a wallpaper that is imitating books in some places? Yeah, I have to say, now we are in peace with this. But (laughs) (laughs) Subscribe now by following the link in the show notes, and let's unravel the secrets of our built world together. Spaces Podcasts. Go beyond the everyday, because spaces shape society. Spaces.